You're listening to The Lenses Podcast from Shades Mountain Baptist Church, engaging the world through the lens of the gospel. For more information and resources, visit shades.org slash lenses. Thank you, Jacob. And we are just now finding out, yes, indeed, it works. That is great. And uh, did you kind of feel like when Jacob was calling out those numbers that we had a little bit of Baptist bingo going on in here? Did it, did it kind of feel that way to you, you know? Uh, well, I, it is an honor to uh, be here tonight, and Jacob, thanks so much for uh, asking me to uh, to do this, and I am so glad that Cameron is going to be presenting next week. It's going to be on kind of contemporary issues related to separation of church and state. Uh, tonight, I got to talk a little bit about the history of it, and then in two weeks, uh, you'll want to be back because... I don't have a clue about what I'm going to say in two weeks. It's all going to hinge on what happens next week. And uh, I'm going to be uh, watching that and then adapting my presentation about how we are to respond as Christians to uh, whatever the next wave is related to separation of church and state. But it's a joy to be here uh, tonight. And before I forget it, let me just tell you, I had no idea how many people would be here. I printed up about 50 copies of uh, a, um, this actually is a Q&A that I did for the Alabama Baptist a couple of years ago on the question of religious liberty. And so there are probably a dozen questions that they posed for me, and I tried to give thoughtful responses to those. So if you want one of those, uh, you can you can have that for no extra charge this evening. Uh, no, no, I, really. Let's just be, I don't think there are 50 people in here who are going to actually want a copy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Danny. Uh, okay. Now, uh, let me just tell you, if you were coming here tonight thinking that you're going to hear a raw politics discussion from me, uh, let me let me just give you a 30-second background here. I'm a preacher's kid. My dad pastored very small churches in Arkansas when I was growing up. And I, in the 1966 Arkansas gubernatorial election, I picked out my candidate. I just knew who I was for, and I could not get my dad to say one word about this candidate. I mean, he he had the view as a pastor that he should not comment at all about his political views. And so one Sunday afternoon, I went out without his knowledge and put a bumper sticker on the back of his car for my candidate. And when we came out of church that night, I was walking over to the car and I saw two of his deacons looking at the back bumper of that car and they did not look happy. And man, did I ever get it when I got home. I mean, you know, Sunday nights at a pastor's home, that's supposed to be a nice time, right? Not that night, okay? I learned the hard way, you know, uh, where, where your church is concerned, sometimes you, you, you leave those discussions outside the sanctuary. So I'm not going to get into the a lot of the raw politics tonight, but... I do want us to uh, to look rather seriously at this history of the separation of church and state that ja- that Jacob asked us to uh, to do, 
And uh, let me just say, David, uh, yeah, there we go. Yeah, disclaimer. There you go. There you have it. Uh, I am a fellow traveler and not an expert. Uh, that's the way that I view myself. I am not a constitutional lawyer, and I am not uh, a trained American historian. I'm a political scientist masquerading as a college president. And I can talk quite a bit about the American electorate and a lot of things like that, but I'm a little bit out of field tonight. And those of us in the academy are always cautious in explaining to people when we're speaking a little bit out of field. So there you go. David, next, next slide. Uh, the principle of religious liberty has long been viewed by people around the world as perhaps the most significant of the hallmarks of the American Republic. And let me illustrate that just a bit. You know, one of the uh, most most famous sermons ever presented by a Baptist on religious liberty was presented on the steps of the Capitol by George W. Truett, who was then the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas. Uh, he presented that sermon called Baptist and Religious Liberty. And this is what he said in the setup to that sermon. Years ago at a notable dinner in London, that world-famed statesman John Bright asked an American statesman, himself a Baptist, the noble Dr. J.L.M. Curry, what distinct contribution has your America made to the science of government? And to that question, Dr. Curry replied, the doctrine of religious liberty. And after a moment's reflection, Mr. Bright made the worthy reply, it was a tremendous contribution. Bright actually was uh, an esteemed British parliamentarian, member of the House of Commons. And this took place at uh, a, a significant dinner where people from around Great Britain were gathered there. What Curry said that evening about the doctrine of religious liberty, then echoed back by this British parliamentarian John Bright, is indeed one of the most remarkable developments in government in the history of the world. The fact that we have the sort of religious liberty that we have in the United States is a very distinctly American tradition that we're going to get into in just a few moments. Now, you know, I can't tell that story without reminding you that Jabez Curry was a president of Howard College, which became Sanford University. The only reason in the world that I worked that story into the whole thing was to be able to use that line. Next slide. First Amendment. Here it is. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. That's the touchstone for everything that we're going to talk about tonight, next week, and the next week. All enshrined there in those words. I don't know if you have ever read the first draft of this amendment, but in fact, James Madison is the one who wrote the first draft. And here it is The civil rights of none shall be abridged on account of religious belief or worship, 
nor shall any national religion be established, nor shall the full and equal rights of conscience be in any manner or in any pretext infringed. Now, as clunky as the First Amendment is, even after it survived a few drafts, to have that would have been unfortunate, I think. Uh, Indeed, James Madison's first draft was not necessarily the best. But as he proposed this, and remember that as this was being discussed, the Constitution had already been ratified. We had the Constitution we were operating with that after the, um, uh, after the failure of our earlier documents to govern the country. We had the Constitution. But Thomas Jefferson and others said, it's not enough. We need civil protections. We need the protections that would be afforded through a Bill of Rights. And so as a compromise procedure to gain ratification of the Constitution, it was commonly accepted that one way or another there would be a Bill of Rights that would be developed to provide the sorts of protections offered in our ten First Amendments to the Constitution. So the process for developing these amendments fell to Congress. And so James Madison, there working in the House at that time, proposed this draft, this first draft, which was roundly criticized by everyone in the House. Another thing that he proposed, and we'll talk about this a bit more later, is that he wanted a specific reference that this measure should extend to the states in addition to the federal government, that this this separation of church and state, the the, the civil rights related to religion would extend to the states as well. That didn't make the cut, and we'll talk about that a bit more in a minute or two. Next slide, David. Jacob's questions that he asked me to answer in this presentation, and I'm going to do so briefly. Where did the idea come from? Why, does it, why is it important, and how has it been considered historically? Let's go to the next slide. Where did the idea come from? Well, uh, it is a distinctly American invention. And as I say on the slide, I think Americans deserve both the credit and the blame. The credit for the genius of it all and how it works. And then the blame for a lot of the ways that perhaps we have failed to navigate it and make it work as effectively as it could. But uh, without doubt, the, the, the folks that were, were inhabiting our country at that time and those who came before them saw with great clarity what this could be and how much it was needed. And it did not truly exist in the world anywhere else. And so what we have is, is unique in the history of uh, governments. Why is it important? Next slide. Many of us feel, as I say on the slide, the separation of church and state has helped to ensure the vibrancy of the church, first of all, and to foster good practices by governments at all levels. Now, why would a separation of church and state help to ensure the vibrancy of the church itself? Well, I believe because the church left alone then 
grows better and is more vibrant and provides a rich nurturing of faith than if something is prescribed by the government. I frequently uh, visit uh, my brother-in-law and his family who live in England, and they are Baptist church planters there, and they have now planted, I think, 11 or 12 churches in England. And as I talk with him and as he takes me around to look at some of these places, I recognize every time that I'm there how weak a state-sponsored church can be, something that is prescribed, something that is endorsed by the government. For us to be free of that means that our faith can be authentic, it can be vibrant, and it creates a great religious culture in the country. But the other thing that it does is I think we get better government as a result of the separation of church and state because we can speak truth to power through this vehicle that we have. In my own case, I'm fully conscious that as I look at at my particular, some of my particular public policy views that are informed by my faith, and one case for me is my pro-life position. I feel that as a Christian holding that distinct view that I can make my case very strongly to the powers that be because of that deep religious conviction. I think government and public policy are better because of the separation of church and state. There are many reasons why it is important, and I suspect that most of us in this room could agree with the significance of the separation of church and state. And then, next slide, uh, Jacob asked me to consider how has it been considered historically, and you see the slide, in every way imaginable. And I'll talk a bit uh, as this, uh, this uh, discussion evolves about how interpreted, misinterpreted, all of the above, uh, the separation of church and state has been throughout our history. There are reasons for confusion, next slide, uh, that I would mention briefly uh, on this issue of separation of church and state. First of all, the laundry list of liberties contained within the First Amendment. There are six different segments within the First Amendment. There is the Establishment Clause. There is the Free Exercise Clause. There is the guarantee of free speech. There is the guarantee of freedom of the press. There is the right guarantee of the right to assemble, and there is the guarantee to petition the government for redress of grievances. Six segments within one amendment. So, first of all, the, the, all of this contained within the First Amendment leads to confusion. Uh, the second uh, um, reason that I would cite is the labyrinth of court cases across two centuries. And we do have a few attorneys in the room, and you know very well about how these constitutional questions are decided over the years, and sometimes in conflicting ways, depending on the makeup of the United States Supreme Court. And so we have a crazy quilt of Supreme Court decisions across two centuries that lead to 
various impressions about what separation of church and state really means. And then the third reason that I cite is uh, the time necessary to develop a deep understanding of the issues. For those of us who are not constitutional scholars, to read enough to gain a true understanding, uh, an accurate understanding of all of this is a challenge. And then the next reason that I cite is the raw emotion of the topic. We can all become very inflamed about talking about this. And so a lot of people over time decide, uh, I'm, I'm not going there. I'm going to stay out of that. And then uh, the last reason that I cite, at least on this slide, is the tendency to cite only sources that are friendly to our side. As most of us are making our arguments about what separation of church and state really mean, we are looking to a lot of the same sources that we usually use that just bolster our particular view. Well, the sad truth is that you can find plenty of evidence to cite whatever view you want to about the separation of church and state. And I will say that my feeling is that for a lot of those of us who are Christians, that a failure to look at some of the other sources and treat those with a blind eye really does not help our credibility in the public square. I tell our students all the time that they've got to be prepared to stand on their own two feet, two feet and make a reasoned argument in the public square. And so if you're going to do that, you've got to at least be familiar with what the other side might be. Next slide, David. Uh, I, I, in, in the midst of this confusion, I think about threading the needle. You know, how in contemporary life do we try to, try to get this right? What are some of the big questions? And I've posed a few for us uh, briefly tonight. Well, the first one is, should church and state be separate? I would imagine that if we ask for a show of hands tonight, it might even be unanimous. We might all say the church and state should be separate. But let's keep going down this list. Should the government tax churches? Should the government allow for tax deductions for gifts to churches? And if so, is this a subsidy of religion? Now, it starts to get a little meddlesome at that point because I think, uh, uh, let's see, Danny, you still around here? Yeah, Danny, uh, should the government tax churches? Okay. Uh, should the government allow for tax deductions for gifts to churches? Yeah, pretty good idea. Yeah. Now, <laughs> well, you know what? You know what, Danny? Yeah. In the not-too-distant future, we may really find out an answer to that question, okay? We may find that out the hard way. But, uh, but it is, in, in, in fashioning public policy, if we've got a separation of church and state. It is a legitimate question to, write, to raise. If so, is this a subsidy of religion? Should the government favor one church or religion over another? Well, uh, I think that hypothetically that all of us would say, well, the government should not favor one church or religion over another. But, ladies and gentlemen, how do you feel when uh, you read the occasional article 
about the Satanists who say uh, we deserve equal treatment, and so if you're going to have a religious or overtly Christian display, we need to have our display right next door. Should the government favor one religion over another? Should churches be able to receive government grants for social ministries? We have churches in our area here who receive grants for doing good work for those that are involved in these social ministries. And then the last question is obviously the most important. Should should students at a church-related university be able to receive government grants and subsidized loans? Absolutely they should. Yeah, that is not even close to the wall of separation of church and state. It is a legitimate question to raise. Whether I like it or not, it is a legitimate question. And especially now that the federal government has assumed most of the control for the majority of the loans that go to students, if the federal government should now decide that they will let students at Sanford, for instance, I'll just mention one institution in a random way. If they should say those students can receive those loans, that's no problem. But now you've got to do X. Well, that's a significant problem for my institution. Okay? So all of these things are involved in what I say is threading the needle. Well, the next next slide, I'm going to um, I'm going to get to the heart of it through talking about some um, what the author characterizes as common myths. He says trampling on some common myths, and this is a book by a guy named Stephen Waldman called Founding Faith. Has anybody in the room read this? It's 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 not widely read. It's been out for a few years. Waldman is um, is relatively neutral. I would not count him as a, um, I, I characterize myself as a rather conservative Christian. I would not think that Waldman falls into that camp. I don't know really where he is on a political spectrum. But he has written one of the most interesting books that I've ever read about religious liberty. And so it won't be exactly what you're bargaining for, I think, but I recommend it. And I want to, I want to look at some of these, what he characterizes as common myths related to uh, church and state for the next few minutes. The first one that he characterizes as a common myth is that America was settled as a bastion for religious freedom. He says that is a, a, a common myth. His, his quote here, actually it was settled primarily by people who wanted rule of one religious denomination over another. And he cites a lot of evidence to this about the early settlers, about as they brought their particular faith uh, to, uh, to this land, that uh, what they really wanted to do was to rule everything according to that faith. And it was a rather vicious era. And so as Christians, we need to study that 
and come to grips with it before we get involved in, in too many discussions where we're buying what Waldman calls that myth. The next myth, the founding fathers were mostly rebelling against the religious tyranny in Europe. They were mostly rebelling against the religious tyranny in Europe. He says they were actually rebelling as much against the religious tyranny they saw among their colonial neighbors. And he again cites quite a bit of evidence about the raw conflict that existed among and between religious sects. Now, can you imagine uh, there being controversy uh, among different religious denominations? I, I cannot believe that that ever took place. I'm so delighted that we live in an era today where none of that ever happens. Well, uh, the, the rebellion was, was a lot against uh, each other. Next, uh, next slide, David. He highlights is what he says a common myth. The founding fathers wanted religious liberty because they were deists. Now, you know what deists are? That, that you know, belief that there is God, but that God kind of put everything in motion and then left it alone, you know, and, and uh, has, has gone off somewhere else. Uh, we know that, uh, that Jefferson, in particular, had a lot of these deist beliefs. But uh, Woolman says that few of the founding fathers were actually what would be considered true deists. He said most of the founding fathers at one point believed in a God who intervened in the lives of Americans. You know, if you want to read uh, something really interesting about George Washington's faith, and this has been widely discussed over the years, but you're aware that in in his rhetoric, both both spoken and written, uh, that he said he said not a lot about faith, but there is a book called "In the Hands of a Good Providence," that is written by a lady named Mary V. Thompson, who is historian at Mount Vernon and who has had access to uh, to all of the Washington uh, manuscripts. Gene, you're smiling because you know that I'm about to say that she is indeed a Sanford graduate. Yeah, she is. The, uh, all things eventually come back to Sanford. Uh, she, she explores this very carefully, and I think you'll be intrigued if you read that book. Uh, Washington's faith was genuine. He was a very private person. But uh, it's, uh, it's impossible to deny uh, Washington's Christian faith. Next, uh, next slide, David. What Waldman characterizes as another myth. The founding fathers wanted religious freedom because they were devout Christians. This is taking the opposite tack, you know, the, not deists, but they were devout Christians. And this is a direct quote out of, uh, out of Waldman. He says, most of them disliked much about organized Christianity, the clerical class, and its theology, especially the common Calvinist doctrine that salvation came only from expressed faith in Jesus or from being among God's select rather than through good works. And it is on this last point especially that I want to talk for just a minute. Because if you read a lot about what they, they said and wrote during this era, it is abundantly clear that these men, the founding fathers, desperately wanted to believe that good works 
would count for something in eternity. This is this is a theme that runs again and again and again. And so this a, a lot of their rebellion as they looked at religion was actually against the what what we as Baptists believe as a tenet that it is through faith. They wanted good works to count for something. They were they were trying to do a lot of good work, I guess, at the time. Uh, but um, that is that's another, uh, as he says, myth. David, next slide. In the current era, he says that it is a myth to believe that evangelical Christians invariably want more government support for religion and less separation of church and state. You know, many of us are accused of wanting less separation of church and state. We that we're accused of wanting to to manipulate. Well, uh Woman is careful to point out that separation of church and state would never have existed in this country if not for the efforts of eighteenth century evangelicals and especially Baptists. Because this is a time when Baptists played a crucial role in public policy and helped to establish and enshrine the gospel of separation of church and state. Next, next slide, David. A lot of people say that religion had nothing to do with the American Revolution, that it was largely about economic matters, the Tea Party, after all, those sorts of things, and other philosophical issues didn't have anything to do with religion. I agree with Waldman. This this is uh, completely false. If you study American history, and if you look at the influence of George Whitfield and the Great Awakening, I do not see how you could come to any conclusion that would say that that. Religion was not important in this era. In fact, I would take it a step further and say that we wouldn't have a country today except for that. I think that it gave rise to so much of the movement uh, that that led to the revolution, led to the establishment of our country. So I agree with Waldman about that myth. And then this is the biggie, the next slide. Waldman says it is a myth to say that the United States was founded as a Christian nation. I'm going to talk about this a little bit more. But his quote is, North America was settled as a Christian realm, and many states did promote Christianity even after the nation's founding. But the United States of America was not established as a, quote, Christian nation. Now, without doubt, and you notice he says, we were settled as a Christian realm. The overwhelming majority of residents espoused some form of Christian belief. There is no doubt about that. But Waldman says in the actual determination of the country that it was not a Christian nation. I want to get back to that in just a little bit. And then I think this is the last Waldman myth. The First Amendment was designed to separate church and state throughout the land. 
remember I told you earlier about um, about James Madison and his first draft of the uh, the First Amendment, and then that he next wanted to nationalize it, to have it apply to all of the states, and that didn't make it through the process. I think that many of you who know American history or constitutional law know that, in fact, it was the 14th Amendment that was passed in 1868 after the American Civil War that actually nationalized the Bill of Rights. And it's through what is known as the Due Process Clause of that amendment, which reads, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without the due process of law. And so it was at that time in 1868, a long time after Madison proposed that it be nationalized, that in fact the Bill of Rights nationalized and applied equally then to all of the states. So while it was not originally designed to operate throughout the land, it did have that effect then with the passage of the 14th Amendment. I like this quote from uh, Waldman. Actually, the founders only intended it to apply to the federal government, not the local governments that regulate schools, local courthouses, and town squares. It's really uh, an, an interesting idea in the experiment there, wasn't it? That you had this broad protection nationally, but uh, the founders were recognizing that in local communities, they could handle such matters themselves. So it was, it was an early attempt at, at a compromise uh, of, of a sort. Well, a few comments here, and then we're going to go uh, directly to the questions, and I'm trying to keep a watch on the clock here, Jacob. Uh, first, uh, first one, few if any of the current philosophical debates regarding the separation of church and state are entirely without precedent. Now, if you're like I am, uh, you're thinking that we are living in the craziest time in the history of the world. And uh, poor Randy Pittman has to listen to me do an old man rant at work, you know, about every, I start to say about every three days. It's probably about every three hours, okay? Uh, don't we all feel sorry for ourselves about the state of affairs right now in the world? Well, you know, if you go back and read the lengthy history of the evolution of this concept, you're going to find that, that practically every single element has been discussed and debated before. So this is, this is a category of there is nothing new under the sun. We uh, sometimes feel uh, that, uh, that only in our era are we having to face difficult choices. Well, Americans have been facing a lot of these choices for a long time. Next, uh, next slide. Many of the early influences in America, especially prior to the creation of the Republic, were focused on the fusion of church and state and not separation. And this is where I want to loop back to talk a little bit about that, that what Waldman characterizes as the common myth that America is a Christian nation. Prior to the founding of the Republic, all of the efforts that were going on were in some measure this, uh, well, virtually all, of, of the fusion, the bringing together of church and state in models that uh, they'd known in Europe. 
So uh, for, for us today to take the look occasionally and say, well, America was founded as a Christian nation, uh, in some measure, we're accurate when we make that statement because all of the early influences were along that way. So at the same time that we need to be careful uh, with, with those on the other side, we need to recognize the legitimacy of some of that argument as well. Next, next slide, David. From the earliest moments of the republic, the issue of separation in church and state has been politicized from the very beginning. And if you read that Waldman book, as you get three-quarters of the way into it, and you get into the discussion of the political compromises that took place in order to produce the First Amendment, that, uh, I mean, I will admit there have been times in my life when I think that it must have been carved in stone on Mount Sinai, you know. I, I am a strong First Amendment advocate. But if you read the story of how that came about, you will understand that it was a brokered deal from day one as they were discussing this. It was the classic uh, making sausage, uh, in, as, uh, as it's often mentioned about how you, how you pass legislation. Uh, it, it, was, it was not pretty, I'm sure, to watch. And my comment below is, before the Founding Fathers became known as the Founding Fathers, they were politicians. They were doing that role, and they were trying to find a compromise that, that could be sold. And then, the next slide, because the separation of church and state is a political construct, and it is, it will inevitably be kept, altered, or eliminated through the political process. And you see my line below. This world is not our eternal home. But ladies and gentlemen, while we are in residence, we should vote because that's our access to the political process. And if you're interested in the First Amendment, if you're interested in religious liberty, then that's your means into that process. Now, let me, uh, uh, Jacob, you want to stop and we will that is amazing. You told me, uh, you told me 6:45, and it is 6:44. I, that's the best I've ever done. Okay, uh, let's uh, let's see what what questions or, or comments. We're going to ask some questions to Dr. Westmoreland. I'm going to give you the gift of if you need to punt because you think this might need to discuss next week or the week after, you're welcome to. Okay. This time, however, in two weeks from now, it's going to be all on you. Okay. Hope that's okay. Okay. We got a question back here. Great. If it was not a Christian nation, what kind of nation was it? Well, it was largely a Christian nation, but not entirely. Uh, but there was some attempt, and, you know, if you look, for instance, at, um, at Benjamin Franklin uh, and his approach to faith, and Benjamin Franklin had a whole lot to do with shaping what it was going to be called, and uh, the symbols and everything else. Well, 
you know, when they, uh, when they got to talking about, um, about some of the symbols, uh, that's where they ended up with uh, more of a Masonic look uh, with some of the symbols that we have. Uh, clearly, the Christian influence was pervasive. But, George, I think of it sometimes this way. Uh, I work at what is commonly understood to be a Christian university. Can a university really be Christian? Can a university uh, profess its faith in Christ? A university is an, an, an object. It's a thing. Uh, can a country really be a Christian country? We've got millions of people who profess Christ in this country. My relationship with God is through Jesus Christ individually. My country cannot save me. So it is a... um, it perhaps is an artificial distinction, but uh, the, the protections afforded under the First Amendment related to religious liberty, I have to acknowledge as a Christian that they protect every other kind of view. And so um, as, as a nation where we are increasingly, uh, this is a little too strong, but it's the way that I feel right now, that we are increasingly a remnant, then I feel that I'm going to need to learn to be that remnant in an effective way. If, If I am truly a part of a minority, then I want to live out that calling as faithfully as I can. And the other thing that is... um, is both uh, disturbing to me and, uh, and helps me to cope with it. Is that if you look at the entirety of the Bible. From creation through revelation. All of that time. That throughout none of that. Was the God culture. Really, the dominant culture. Uh, Throughout all of that, God's people have been a minority. We've been a remnant. We've lived in an unusual period of history where we could say, many of us who were born a little more distant than some in this room, we have been able to say, that uh, our culture, our Christian culture, is the dominant culture in this country. We've lived in an unusual time. And I will have to say it grieves me to know that that time has changed significantly. But what I've got to do is to understand how I can be faithful in the moment, what, whatever it is. So, uh, I am a, um, I, I'm, I'm a Christian.
And I have the joy of having fellowship with a lot of other Christians. But um, I cannot say that I live in a Christian nation. It has been an interesting path to get me to where I am with all of that right now. Uh, other, I saw another, uh, another I'm hand. I'm going to uh, interject real quick and let you know that we have all of these printouts, and they're going to be at the front available. I'm also, uh, because Christmas is coming up, Michael Adler is going to really get on to me if I don't dismiss the choir now for the practice for the uh, CBC. So if you're in the choir and Are you, you have afraid to go, of Michael Adler? Deathly afraid of Michael Adler. Very afraid yeah. of Michael Adler. If you would like the prayer prompts or the article that Dr. Westmoreland mentioned, they're going to be in the front pew up here. Um, okay, uh, where was the next question? Uh, I, think, uh, I think I saw a hand back here. Maybe not. I've heard it said that um, most of the people who lived in North America at the time would live their whole life and probably never talk to another person who wouldn't at least profess Christ as Lord. And that I've heard this argument that the separation clause was really intended to keep the government from proclaiming a particular Christian denomination Mm -hmm. as the national denomination. And maybe the reason Baptists were so supportive of that was because they knew that if that were the case, it would have been Episcopalian. Um, Does that argument matter? Is that argument true? What does it mean today? Well, likewise, I've heard heard that same uh, argument. Uh, You know, uh, Preston, the the truth on this is um, it was designed from the beginning to be so ambiguous that that, uh, that is what helped to guarantee the passage of the amendment. It was deliberately designed to be ambiguous and difficult for people to figure out. And Jefferson had a quote in a letter to, uh, to Madison about this that I think is, is fascinating in today's context. And I wish that I could get it exactly right. But he said uh, something along the lines of... Uh, uh, we wished that there could be greater clarity. The ambi- ambiguity was okay because he said, the federal judiciary will be able to faithfully protect the liberties. Do I need to comment more on that? Uh, and so uh, truth is, uh, on, on, on that point, uh, Nobody really knows the answer to that. I, I, likewise, I've, I've heard the, the argument. Uh, somebody uh, over here, I thought. So on a number of the things up there, you talked about how when busting the myths, it's sort of like you can find evidence for all interpretations of one thing or another. And you talked a lot about the need for compromise in the political process that got us the First Amendment and the freedom of religion that we have. With so much division kind of wrapped up in the debate, is there a particular place that you found as a good place for finding like a common ground or a unity? 
when you're having these conversations with people? This is the one question that I am going to punt a little bit on. Uh, I was I was telling Randy uh, he was in my office earlier today and he said well you are you ready for tonight and I said well you'll be able to tell me later if I was ready for tonight Uh, and uh, I did review with him uh, very uh, quickly what I was going to do but then I said you know what I'm really looking forward to is in another two weeks because uh, I want to I want to try to synthesize where we are and I'll talk in a little bit more direct terms in that session about forecasting where I think we may be headed. But uh, I can assure you that, to your point, that what I'm going to try to do, regardless of what happens uh, next week, uh, I'm going to uh, try to be as hopeful as I can about where we are headed. And I'll, I'll offer some very specific comments in that session not necessarily uh, advising you about what you ought to do, but at least admitting what I'm going to do, okay? Uh, but I do have some things to say about that in, in a couple of weeks. And uh, I'm glad you raised the question because uh, we, um, we have, as Christians, much to be hopeful about and much, much to unite us. Maybe another one? Yes. Uh, you said that uh, church and state separate is better because the, we offer better. Government is better and the church is better and the church can speak truth to power. Maybe this is a question for two weeks, uh, but could you prime the pump a little bit or offer maybe a few ways that the church can speak truth to power? Yes. And I believe that... Uh, I believe that we should not be shy about what we do in, in this regard. And, uh, in fact, I believe that, uh, that what we're going to find is um, that some of this is going to need to be resolved. Some of it's going to need to be clarified through a one or two or three Supreme Court cases uh, to, to, to explain what religious liberty uh, means in this era. And uh, frankly, I think that uh, the first line of that will be at places uh, like where I serve. Uh, I think that uh, the church is not necessarily under assault at this moment, but I think that church-related organizations will be the first test. And so I think that it's going to be crucial for uh, those of us who are involved in organizations that uh, have a distinctly Christian mission, but that aren't churches, that we're careful in the way that we speak to this and uh, possibly in the way that, um, that legal challenges are determined. Because the next wave, Danny, will be the churches. And so uh, I, I think that we must be prepared to, um, to make our arguments and that we must be prepared to make our arguments clearly on, on legal grounds, citing a range of sources and locking arms with people that we may have had serious disagreements with about theology in, uh, in, in other areas. We need, I think, a, a, a wonderful coalition of uh, denominations, uh, every flavor, in order to 
to, uh, to come to grips with the challenges that we are going to face. And I will speak to this in, in more detail in a couple of weeks. But uh, it's, um, it, it may not, it, it may be painful. This next chapter may be painful. So what's the role of a, a Christian in respecting the process, like the legal process, for example, even when we disagree with the outcome or a court decision. We've had a Supreme Court justice, our chief justice, removed from office for his take on this. How, as Christians, should we yeah. respond? If, if I was really good with answering that question, I would have become a lawyer and, uh, and not a college president. You know, lawyers some, somehow have the knack for being able to sit there and, and sometimes even make an argument that they don't really believe, uh, you know, in order to, uh, to, to do their thing. Uh, I think that, uh, that the only advice that I have for myself along those lines is to constantly remember the Christian virtues, uh, to, to, to listen carefully, to respect everyone in my path, and to try to recognize uh, that, uh, you know, they, they may have a portion of a good argument as well. Uh, but it is, it's a particular challenge for me. I don't know that I do that well, uh, to tell you the truth. But I'm a work in progress. Uh, but patience, listening, respect. I talked with a group of our students last night. And I told them that the most important lesson I thought they could learn in trying to develop leadership qualities was to respect every person in their path. And that doesn't mean you have to agree with them, uh, but if we're, if we're commanded to love every single person, then somewhere embedded in that has got to be respect. Uh, that's uh, an incomplete answer to your question. When you get it figured out and can live it, come see me. Uh, somebody over here. Hey, doctor, I wonder, you mentioned judiciary two or three times. What percentage would you guess, would you have an idea of their decision? I know they've reversed themselves like 160 times over the 200 years. I wonder what percentage of these would be church and state. I would not know, an, even remotely, know an answer to that question. Uh, I'll let you know next week. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm I'm looking to Gene over here. Gene, um, do some research on that one and and uh, and, and let us know. Yeah. Uh, before uh, before we close things down, I, I want to mention another book to you, and you may have uh, you may have read it already. But um, uh, Eric Metaxas, uh, uh, if if we can keep it, um, if if you have not read that book. You need to get it. And one of the things that he talks about in there uh, with uh, George Whitfield, and uh, I may be getting this, uh, this quote wrong. I think, I think I'm right. It's estimated that George Whitfield spoke to 80% of the people who were alive in America during his ministry, during that period of the Great Awakening. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? And that's why I said, I think that absent George Whitfield, that it's impossible for me to understand how we'd even have a country today. But um, that is, that's, that's a reminder to me uh, in the face of everything that we're looking at today.
We don't need to think for a minute that God can't change this whole thing in, in a period of a very short time. So, um, I, I mean, I, I, I think that studying history sometimes uh, leaves us a little bit jaded. Not studying the history of the Great Awakening. That gives me great hope. So, uh, who knows? Maybe, uh, maybe the next Great Awakening is about to happen right here in the United States. Uh, it's Eric Metaxas, and it is um, if we can keep it. Uh, it's if we can if we can keep the republic. You got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. Uh, it's it's a good book. Uh, Eric Metaxas. Somebody spell Metaxas. M e t a x. Something. Yeah, yeah. A s. Yeah, if we can keep it. If you can keep it. If you can keep it. No, if me, if you, yeah. If you can keep it. The, 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 the story is, you know, we have a republic uh, if, if you can keep it. You know, that's the, that's the deal after the Constitutional Convention. Okay. Well, that's We're a done. great uh, moment for us to transition. Let's give a thanks to Dr. Westmoreland for being here. We're going to break up into small groups. I'm going to be silly for just a moment, but know that I'm also very serious. We're going to break up into groups, and you can go throughout the room. Maybe around here would be easiest, but in groups of five to eight, and we're going to answer these questions. Uh, This is not a chance for soapboxes or monologues. If you find yourself speaking for longer than 90 seconds, I'm going to encourage members of your small group to give you just the squeeze on the elbow, and we know what that means, right? The squeeze on the elbow, because this is meant to be a dialogue instead of monologue. I trust you all, but that was for somebody else. Just know that's who that was for. Uh, At this time, we're going to break up in about 10 or 15 minutes. We'll close together in corporate prayer, but uh, break up now, and we'll speak in a moment. Thank you. I hope that tonight was enlightening and encouraging, and uh, we're thankful again for your uh, contribution to the discussion. We are going to close in prayer. We're not praying specific for the Cubs, but we are underneath uh, all of the... We believe in miracles, is all I'm saying, and that would be a miracle. Uh, I am teasing about that. But uh, let's stand together. For our closing prayer, we're going to do a recitation from Isaiah chapter 9. So uh, uh, read with me. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. Have a great night. We'll see you this Sunday and then next week.